Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, and you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, going, toward, going, down, to the, going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as, as, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Satim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people, Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And finally, in chapter 4, beginning with verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal, on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the, out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall say to your children, No, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. Because I'm repeating this sermon, most people know uh, so much of the content of it. And uh, I was in Home Depot, I think about a month ago, buying something, and um, somebody told me this story about the fence that I bought, I brought, I made 17 years ago, and they knew the story better than I knew the story. I was like, dude, it's my story, and you know better than I do. But I think they had, they had heard it 17 years. In case you haven't heard it, back in 1990, I bought my first home. 
We bought it on a little cul-de-sac that had an easement in the back, so that was nice. And then our neighbor to the right, because we were on like this pie-shaped lot, was kind of wide away from us. But we had a near neighbor on the left, and I thought, you know, it would be nice for privacy to just make a, a, just one fence, just straight down, no gate, no turning the corner, nothing. How hard can that be? And so I called a friend who was a builder. Hell, Paul, you can do that, no problem. And so I, I went online. I go to Lowe's. They have these eight-foot paneled fences already built. I'm like, this is so awesome. It's already done. All you have to do is put the post in the ground, slap the panels up, and you've got a presto instant fence. So I, I get my chalk line out in my backyard, you know, the little plumb line that you have to make sure you have, you're putting your fence in straight. I pop the little chalk line. I've got that down. I put my posts in. I let them settle for a day in the concrete. And then the next day I come back and I take this eight foot piece of fence and I kind of prop it up on the, the uh, posts. And I've got some blocks there. I tack it up. I stand back and I'm like, dang, this is awesome. You know, I'm doing a little Snoopy dance in the background going, this is going to be so easy. So I go get the other eight-foot panel, and, and I put it up, and I notice it's not quite, quite even. So I go back to the first panel, and I measure, and I, I look at the first panel, and I notice that it's, it's tilted up just a quarter of an inch on the trailing side. So I notice that when I put my second panel up, Guess what? It starts off a quarter of an inch too high. So I kind of angle it in there, and then this end is four inches too high. So, you know, you don't notice a quarter of an inch, but four inches off on the second panel of eight panels, I could tell. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I could tell that was going to be a problem. I did some quick calculations, and my last panel would have been 40 feet in the air. So... (laughs) Not an effective fence. So what did I have to do? I had to go back to the very first one and say, I can't afford for this to be even a quarter of an inch off. If that's all I was doing, you know, nobody would notice. But because something's going to come behind this this first panel, it's going to be noticeable the further on you get. And that was a perfect illustration for my chief concern for this church. Was that while I was here, it would sort of look okay. But maybe somewhere along the way, we would just get a little bit off. But you know, it wouldn't be so noticeable. But the next generation that comes along is going to start at that starting place that's just a little bit off. And then when they hand it off to the next generation, it's going to, we're not really going to have a functional fence anymore. And sadly, we've seen it. Many of you have been in churches this way, that somewhere along the way, they got just a little off. And it didn't seem so noticeable, except for 50 years later or 100 years later. Now we're not really trusting the Word of God anymore, and we've got something totally different than what God had designed. So when I think about that illustration, I think, well, what are the things that we need to make sure are, are definitely embedded in our church And on that Sunday, I had three different points that I made that I'm going to make again. First of all, we have to have godly leadership. Secondly, we have to have God's word. And third, we have to have courage. These, to me, were were sort of foundational pillars for us that I want to just remind ourselves of this morning. 
And uh, I was talking to somebody just briefly uh, in the hallway. They said, Paul, you know, there's a number of people who could just stand up and tell you the whole sermon as you talked about it. And I thought, yep, that's really good. Because the more we understand these things, the the better off we're all going to be. First, first critical component to keep this first panel in the right spot for the sake of the next panel that will come after all of us is God's leadership. You see, leadership is an important concept of the Bible. You see it right out, right out at the very beginning. Uh, Adam and Eve, they were the first two, but of those two, Adam was the leader. He had a, a unique role. They were, these two different roles were complementarian to each other. And so we know Adam was the leader because after the fall, God comes back into the garden. And what's the very first thing he says? Remember? Adam, where are you? Well, why didn't he say Adam and Eve? Why doesn't he say Eve? Because he's going through a chain of command. He's saying, hey, Adam, you're the leader. You're the one that's supposed to protect my name. And you're supposed to protect my people, your wife here. It's just... Just me and your wife right now, but you're the one who's supposed to stand out here and stand in the way like this house. You're supposed to get in the way of any disaster coming, and you're supposed to let the whole world know God is great. And, I'm, and by doing that, I'm going to protect or cover anybody else. And you failed in your leadership. And really from Genesis 3 on, everybody in the Bible has been leaning forward to say, is there another Adam? Is there another person who's going to come and is going to really protect God's name, is really going to protect God's people? And of course, as we've seen, especially looking in Samuel, it's just a series of people that do some good things, but they're not quite the Savior. They all point us to Jesus. Well, Joshua is a kind of Jesus figure, and in Joshua chapter 1, he gets sort of an assignment. He gets an assignment just like uh, that Adam had gotten, and he is assigned to bring the people into the promised land, like it's a new garden. And so we have a new Adam, and we're coming into a new garden, and he's supposed to make sure that God's name remains great. You see that in the very last line that I read in chapter 4, you're coming in, you've passed over the Jordan... And you've set up these stones, these 12 stones have come out of the river Jordan and you've set them up like an altar and it's called an Ebenezer. And when people pass by there, they're going to say, hey, why are these 12 stones here? And you're going to say, because God's done something great in verse 24, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And that you may fear the Lord your God forever. I, I want to set down a marker, Joshua, that when you come in, that people know God is mighty. And so you're the leader to make that happen. And as I was thinking about that 17 years ago, I'm thinking about it more strongly today. Because 17 years, it's gone by pretty fast. You know the phrase, uh, the days go by. The days are long, but the years are short. You ever have that? Some of you are like, no, my days and years are long. Uh, But you feel that like any day, any week, like, oh, this is long. But then when you look back, you go, I can't believe how fast this has gone. And, And 17 years has gone by fast. And so in all likelihood, I'm closer to the end than I am the beginning now. And so one day, it's not going to be, this isn't going to be my job. 
It's going to be somebody else's job. Some other man's going to come up here and be the person that's going to be the leader of the group like the Joshua. And it's so critical that we get somebody in here that has these certain characteristics that really are, they're trusting God and they're leading people to make God's name great. And here are two characteristics we see here of Joshua. Number one, Joshua is listening to the Lord. Joshua 1 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua and Joshua listened. Joshua is paying attention to the Lord. He's following after the Lord. We definitely don't want somebody in this pulpit who's following the mood of the congregation. We don't want somebody here who's following the direction of the culture. We don't want somebody here who's following their own mood. We need somebody who's really listening in and trying to make sense of what God says out of his word and try to lead people in that direction. And you would think, well, wouldn't every church want to do that? And why wouldn't a church do that? And you know, the distractions and the pressure is it's actually pretty great. Culture is always trying to move in on the church and move it in the direction that the culture wants to go. And one of the it's funny and also sad illustrations that I use every year is this reality show that they were trying to get off the ground. It was called the Pulpit Masters. I don't know if you would, would you tune into the Pulpit Masters? I don't know. That wouldn't strike me as like, you know, must-see television. But the Pulpit Masters, and here was the little tagline, could you be America's next inspired leader to make a difference in millions of people's lives? Are you filled with the fire and passion of God? We're looking for someone who can wow the pants off an audience. Wow. You get three minutes to preach your way to stardom. Is that, is that what we want? Somebody who can wow your pants off? I mean, really, we want you to keep your pants on here at Christ Community Church, if that's all right. But do you see what the culture is saying? This is, this, is, this is the way the culture drives the church to say, this is what makes it popular. This is what makes it meaningful. Get somebody who's the star. And we have to make sure this person understands they're not the center of the show. When you come to church, I'm not the center of the show. When you come to church... You're not the center of the show. When we all come to, sh- to church, the center of the show is Jesus. And we're trying to make much of him. And when we make much of him, blessings come our way. It's like the house. When, when, when he's out front, when he's the one who's, who's fighting for us, then we can safely tuck in behind. But, but when we find ourselves out front, it's going to be disastrous. And so Joshua, Joshua, he understands this. He's listening. He's leaning into the Lord. He's, he's got his mind focused on him. And haven't we seen in, in Samuel, that's been the primary problem with Saul. Saul started off leaning in towards God, but then Saul, Saul became for Saul. And he drove the whole country into the ground as a, in the process. So we need a leader who's tuned into God and leading in that direction, one characteristic. We need another characteristic in this leader is he must be a servant. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says about Moses. After the death of Moses, now how, how would you describe Moses? 
if you have a tombstone, you only have a little space. And here's the little space on his tombstone. The servant of the Lord. Isn't that a great little phrase? Isn't that the phrase you might want on your tombstone? I'm just, I, you know, it's not me. I serve someone else. I'm like an instrument. God picked me up. He used me. And then when he was ready to put me down, that I was done. I, I'm an instrument of the Lord. I'm a, I'm a servant of the Lord. And now God is saying, Joshua, I need you to have this same characteristic. You've got to be a servant of the Lord. In the New Testament, the word Leader is used less than 10 times. The word servant appears more than 1,000 times. Now, we're not surprised because the Son of Man, what? Did not come to be served, but to serve. And we follow him, so we give our, our lives away just as he did. There's a statue of John Wesley. John Wesley, the great preacher Anglican guy who actually ended up starting the Methodist church. And uh, he was five foot two. Uh, They calculate that in his lifetime, he preached over 40,000 sermons. Get on horseback and he'd just travel around the country from little small town to little small town, preaching day after day, many times more than once a day. At 83, he got angry at his doctor because his doctor wouldn't let him preach more than 14 times in one week. When he was 86, we have a little journal entry, and he says this, laziness is slowly creeping in. There is an increasing tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 in the morning. Wow. Come on, John. Buck up, buddy. I mean, you're 86. Let's get moving. It's 5.30. It's incredible. And so this statue is there in London, and underneath it says this, reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't. Give God the glory. You see that? That's the kind of leadership God works with. That's why Moses was such an effective leader. Not perfect, but effective because he was servant. This is why Joshua was such an effective leader. Because it didn't have to be about Joshua. It wasn't the Joshua show. It was the God show. And Joshua was a servant. Joshua was an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. And then in those hands, he was going to make a difference. So one of the key things to keep us from being a quarter of an inch off is we have to have the right kind of leadership. The second thing is we have to have God's word. So the plumb line, I talked about it. It's a a little line that looks like kite string comes out of this uh, little box, usually has uh, some blue or purple chalk in it, and you, you pull it across and then you snap it so it hits the ground. And so you know, here, th- I know this is straight. So no matter what I do with my fence, and I, it seems straight to me, but I've always got to look according to the plumb line because the plumb line is going to be straight. And for us, and I hope for every church, the plumb line is God's word. We, we, we've got to make sure we're living our lives according to this string from Genesis to Revelation. And to emphasize this point for Joshua, just to make sure he doesn't forget, God says, hey, I'm going to tell it to you, and then I'm going to show it to you. So God's a great teacher, so he knows some people are audible learners, and I can just tell you stuff. You get it, you take it, you run with it. Some people are like, I don't hear it, I need to see it. So he goes, I'm going to do both for you, Joshua. I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to show it to you so you understand the value of God's word. First thing he's going to do is say it. 
chapter 1, verse 7. Be strong and courageous. It's going to take strength and courage to do everything written in the law. See that? It's not just be strong and courageous in the culture. It's actually going to take great courage to just follow God's word. Don't depart from it. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Don't get a quarter of an inch off, Joshua. Meditate on it day and night. See, see, Joshua, you're going to get into the culture. You're going to move across from this desert plain, and you're going to cross the Jordan, and you're going to get into a populated culture, and that culture is going to want to try to move you or move this nation. And I need to make sure as you move into this culture that you stay living according to this plumb line. You've got to be meditating on it. You've got to be marinating in it. You've got to keep your eyes on the, the word and not on the world. And this has been always a helpful illustration to me. If you were to learn how to fly a plane, the first rating you get is called a, called a visual rating. And that means you take enough lessons and you don't ever crash your plane. You get your little visual rating. And it means you can go up on a day like today. It's nice and clear. Because you're going to fly your plane according to what you see. You're not going to be looking at the instruments. You're going to be looking at the ground. You're going to be looking at other things in the air. And you can figure out what to do because of how you perceive things. Which is wonderful unless you need to get somewhere when it's cloudy or dark or foggy. And in order to fly a plane in those kinds of conditions, you need another rating. It's called an instrument rating. And that means you no longer fly according to how you feel. You no longer fly according to how things look. You only fly according to the instruments. So you're up there flying and say, well, I feel a certain way. Let me check my instruments. No, the instruments are always right. Instruments are always right. And the reason is, is because they found pilots who didn't pay attention to their instruments. They fly into a cloud bank, and when they come out, they're upside down. And they had no idea. Unfortunately, they found people flying to a cloud bank, and they're actually flying into the ground. They kill everybody on board. Because they flew according to how they felt. They took their eyes off the instruments. And one of the instructors for... Uh, one of the schools said this, the toughest part about earning your instrument rating is learning, now listen, the toughest part is learning to have an unquestioning faith in the instruments. Because I'm so conditioned to fly by how I see, fly by how I feel, I even have a little licensor to, to live my life this way, but now I've got to live in a different way and I've got to have unquestioning faith in the instruments. When your eyes say one thing and the instruments tell you another, you must trust the inter- instruments or face grace, great disaster. Joshua, you're, you're getting a, a new chance. You're leading people into the, a new garden. You're, you're strategically located so the whole world could hear about God. Don't take your eyes off the instruments. Christ Community Church. 17 years ago today.
You're strategically located. Don't take your eyes off the instruments. Don't get a quarter of an inch off. Don't, don't get what well, I feel or I think or I see. No, come back to the instrument panel and see what God has to say. And if it goes against your feelings, go with the instrument panel. If it goes against what you see, go with the, go with the instrument panel. That's the thing that has to be locked down for us. So it's a verbal exhortation. And then secondly, he says, in case you didn't get it, I'll give you a visual illustration. When you take the, uh, when you lead the people across the River Jordan, you're going to have the uh, Ark of the Covenant. You know, inside the Ark of the Covenant is what? The Word of God. And the priests are going to carry it. There's going to be some long poles. These guys are going to be carrying it on their shoulders. And they're going to march out into the middle of the river. The river's going to part and you're going to come on through. But when the Levitical priests are marching out, I want to make sure you, say, you stay 2,000 cubics or 3,000 feet behind. That's a long way. 3,000 feet behind. Why? He says, you don't know where you're going. You've never been this way before. Christ Community Church, I know you got a vision. I'm not saying it's bad. But in the next 17 years, I'm going to take you places you haven't been before. The culture is going to encroach on you. Things are going to happen. And you're going to be in places you've never been before. And when you're in those places, you better have the word solidly out front. Because if you don't, you might swerve off to the right or to the left. And I I don't think he wants even Joshua to get up close to the Ark of the Covenant because he doesn't want the leader to get confused with God. We're following God who we trust Joshua is following. But if Joshua doesn't follow God, guess what? We're following God. We want to make sure there's a good distance. And that's one of the reasons why when we read our scripture, we do it the way we do. I think it's helpful to have a few minutes of silence or a few moments of silence, but we want to create some space between what God says and what I have to say. And so we do that visually by having that space between when I read God's word and then what I say, because I want you to go home and be thinking about what Joshua has to say, not what I had to say. So we have to have a good leader. He has to have certain characteristics Listen to God, follow after him, be a servant. We have to have God's word. And finally, we have to have courage. Joshua, it's going to take courage. I mean, I'm I'm telling you, you have, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm telling you that you have God's word. I'm telling you that I'm going to fight for you, but you're going to have to step into the ring. I really wish it was another way, honestly. Don't you? Hey, Paul, I'm going to fight all your battles for you. You can just sit on the couch. But it doesn't work that way. You've got to get in there. You, he's going to take you up as part of his plan. He's going to pull you in as an instrument. And you've got to actually march into the Canaanite territory And you're going to have to be strong and courageous. He says it three times. Now, he's saying it three times to not a a guy who's a noodle. Joshua's not a noodle. He's a five-star general. 
This is the toughest guy in the Bible. And he, God knows it's going to be tough when you get in there. So you need to have strength and courage, Joshua. He says it over and over again. And he says it because there's, he knows that the perception of the people is that the Canaanites are giants. Remember that? Forty years ago, Joshua and a little group of 12 spies had come in. Joshua and Caleb says, I think we can go in because God's with us. And the other 10 say, no, they're giants. And we look like little grasshoppers. So that cost them 40 years. And Joshua knows these people are afraid. He might feel their fear. When you go out into the culture, they're giants. You still got to go out. And you have to go out with strength and courage. But I don't think that was actually Joshua's biggest concern. I think his, his biggest concern with the people he was leading not the place that he was going. And the reason I say that is because Joshua had been with these people for the last 40 years. And if you know anything about your Bible, what are these 40 years like for the Israelites? I mean, complainers. Oh my, it's so painful to read. You've been saved from slavery, in case you haven't forgotten. In case you've forgotten. You get into the desert and God provides food and water and protection and guidance And every time, let's go back to Egypt. They've got onions in Egypt. I mean, it's just, when you read it, you're like, how can these people do this? And then you see it in your own soul. It's so easy to go back to the way you were, that somehow it satisfies some immediate need rather than follow after God. And Joshua knows these are the kinds of people I'm, I'm moving into this giant territory. They might quickly turn on me. I think Joshua is more concerned about arrows from behind than arrows from in front. So God knows it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage because of what you're heading into And it's going to take courage just to remain faithful. Just for yourselves to remain faithful. One of my favorite little passages in the Bible comes between Mark 4 and 5. And you'll you'll be very familiar with it. So Jesus is in Capernaum. This is his adult hometown. And this is where he does the Sermon on the Mount and a lot of other teaching. And so he's with his disciples. He's doing all this teaching. He says, hey guys, uh, after the teaching's done, let's go to the other side. Now, in the Jewish mind, they say, we don't go to the other side. The Jews are on this side, the Greeks are on this side, and we don't get involved in that dark culture over there, Jesus. So, we love your teaching, but geographically, we'd just like to stay right here. Is that all right? No. So, they get into the boat. What happens halfway across? Big storm comes up. Disciples try to figure out how to get back home. They can't get back home. They wake up, Jesus, what do they ask? Jesus, don't you care if we're perishing? Now, what do you really want Jesus to say right at that moment? Yes, Paul, I care about your life right here. I care that you're perishing. He looks at him and says, where's your faith? I'm not concerned about the happiness of your life nearly as much as I'm concerned about your faith. Because, guys, when we get over here to the dark spots, this culture is going to be difficult. And you've got to have faith. I'm the, they've got the instrument panel in the boat. And yet they're losing faith with Jesus in the boat. 
And so they get this little lesson to say, we've got to have our eyes locked on Jesus. And they hit the shore. And who's the one guy they meet? Legion. Lives in a graveyard next to a pig pen. Doesn't have any clothes and has chains as jewelry. And they hit the shore and this naked man runs down towards them screaming. And in the passage, it just says, and Jesus got out of the boat. See, that's where he's leading us. He's saying, guys, I need you to get out of the boat and get into these kinds of cultures, but you're not going to last if you don't have faith. Now, it doesn't say the disciples get out of the boat. I just imagine them going, Jesus, you know, we're done here. I mean, well, you can walk on water. You will see you back here. This little Mark 4 passage is really for just like Joshua. Guys, you have to have your eyes on me because I'm requiring you to go to the other side. It's not optional. You can't stay in here. That's not one of the options. You have to go out to the other side. And when you get to the other side, whatever that may be for you, it's going to be complicated. It's going to be messy. You're not going to actually know what to answer or how to go necessarily, but you're going to have me and I'm not going to leave you and I'm not going to forsake you. You have to trust in God, his power and his help. Be strong and courageous. We started Christ Community Church 2.0 in the last year. And already things are popping up that are not what we could have seen a year ago. And they're exciting. But it's going to take some courage. going to take some strength. And I want us to be ready for it. We, we tell this sermon every year like a, like a, a memorial. Like an Ebenezer. Stands every year on in May as a little stone heap to say, well, let's make sure we don't get too far away from what we think is most important. So we, we intentionally bring ourselves back around and say, yeah, this, this was what was important 17 years ago. This is what's important today. And in a thousand years, this is what's going to be important. I am so happy to be the pastor of Christ Community Church. I couldn't tell you how happy I am. So excited about all the things that people have done that have taken real courage, real faith. And it might have been just to face things down in your own life. And then many of us taken really courageous steps with people out in the community or some other neighbor or somewhere. It's been so exciting. But, you know, it only takes one year to get a little bit off. And nobody really wants to say it. Nobody really notices it. And then... The next generation after Paul is, starts a quarter of an inch off, and pretty quickly we've lost what we started. That first Sunday after I gave that sermon, Kenny Smith came up to me and said, Well, Paul, that sounds good, but I don't know. Can you keep it? I was like, Are you wanting to join the church? Because I don't see your name on the registry here. But he smiled, and I said, Well, Kenny, that's, what, that's our hope. That's our goal. That's why I said it. And all glory to God so far, so good. And as excited as I've been, there there are more perils ahead. 
for you, for us. And those represent real opportunities to get off just a little bit. So let's pray that we don't do that. Lord, thank you so much for your word. (laughs) That this man who led a group of people in the wilderness into the promised land 3,000 years ago has so, so much relevance to us today. That you are the new Joshua. You're leading your people into a new land and you're purposely putting us in in difficult places to cause us to strengthen our faith, to trust in your word and not in our eyes or our feelings. To be a servant. To say, Lord, here we are. Pick us up and you use us. And whenever that last day is, you take us down and we'll be happy to have been an instrument in your hands. Lord, would you bless this church. May may we be really the house behind that house. That you're the one who has paid the price. And we just stand in great nearness to you for your guidance and your protection. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together. <laughs>